WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts, and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. All week for our series, Closing the Gap, we dug into disparities in mental health care. Who has it? Who doesn't? And how the pandemic has changed the way we think and talk about these issues. We talked about mental health needs in Chicago. We hit on the fallout from the city closing most of its clinics over the last 20 years. And heard from people in hard-hit communities working to fill those holes. We even talked to people working and thinking outside the box on things like family therapy and movement therapy. Today, we wrap up the series with a look at how our local and state governments handle mental health policy. We'll also get analysis on a new Illinois hotline connecting residents to badly needed mental health services. Let's begin by asking questions about mental health policy in our region from Matt Richards. He's Deputy Commissioner of Behavioral Health at the Chicago Department of Public Health. Hi, Matt. Welcome to Reset. Hi, Sasha. Thanks so much for having me. Matt, with the many challenges that we've been discussing this week in our series, Closing the Gap, can you lay out for our listeners the investments by the Lightfoot Administration in mental health treatment, resources, and infrastructure? Absolutely. I first wanted to thank you for the focus that you've placed on this. You all have really gone in-depth, and I've appreciated that. So, you know, as you know, this is a major area of focus for the mayor. She campaigned on it. We've seen almost a 300 uh, percent increase in the city's mental health budget since she started. And really going back to the fall of 2019, pre-pandemic, we had really four priority areas. So one was that we were going to rebuild the safety net mental health system in communities of highest need, particularly on the south and west side. And we funded 32 trauma-informed centers of care, uh, over an $8 million investment, and 32 clinics, primarily on the south and west side, that had the greatest need for services. And we put millions of dollars into the five CDPH clinics that needed, in many cases, full renovation, needed to be able to do telehealth, needed more psychiatrists. So it's really been very all-hands-on-deck in terms of scaling up our outpatient clinics. We also really were very concerned about how we bring mental health services outside the walls of clinics. And something we've done since she started is integrating mental health services across the city's entire homeless shelter system into homeless encampments. We've established victim service teams that provide mobile mental health services to people impacted by violence in communities with the highest rates of violence. So that was a, a second area of focus is how do you bring mental health services outside of clinics. And then a third thing we were really, really concerned about is crisis response. You know, we know that the crisis response system, the 911 system, is really not set up to address people's underlying mental health needs. And there's this unfortunate trend of folks with unaddressed mental and social needs cycling through that system. And so we're going to be piloting a really exciting pilot this year. It's one of the largest pilots in the country of integrating mental health professionals into our city's 911 call center and then also on teams that are going to be responding to 911 calls. 
falls across the city. Well, Matt, this week we've spoken with community members who felt the city's response has been inadequate for the scale of this problem. What do you say to those critiques? I mean, do you not see any gaps? Oh, I think there absolutely are gaps. I mean, that's the reason why we've increased the budget by 300%. So, you know, uh, I think there were a lot of challenges to address. The mayor, mayor was very, very clear-eyed about that, you know, when she was campaigning. And I, a 300% budget increase is really, really significant. And I think one of the things we're looking at is how do we grow at the right pace, do so in a very thoughtful way, um, getting community engagement and community input as we go. Sometimes, we, you know, uh, governments will skip that part and we'll just roll out programs. And so I think we're trying to be very planful and very intentional. The other part of it is really thinking about how do we align with the federal government, the state government, the county government. There's lots of resources coming through those levels of government as well. And one of the historic problems in the mental health system is that investments are not well coordinated across levels of government. I mean, just before uh, speaking to you today, I was on the phone with colleagues at the state who run our substance use programs. And the mayor's team is in close contact contact with the governor's team, and we speak with them very regularly. And so I think we're also thinking about how do you leverage resources across all levels of government to address uh, the challenges that we confront. But there's certainly, I think, as we move forward, going to be opportunities to do even more. We've also talked this week uh, a lot, actually, about former Mayor Rahm Emanuel's decision to close half of the city's mental health clinics back in 2012. What are your thoughts, Matt, on that and, and how you've dealt with the aftermath? I think we have a lot of concerns about that decision and about the legacy of that decision. I mean, I think it left two really big problems that I and and the mayor's team are really focused on. So one is what I call access problems. So this is when folks need a service and the service is just not available. And the way that you solve that problem is pretty straightforward. It's consistent and ongoing investment, and you have to be in it for the long haul, and you have to put your money where your mouth is. And so that's what we're doing by tripling the budget. you got to show up, and you've got to put money into community. The second issue is what I call connection and coordination problems. So that's where either we have resources that already exist, but people don't know they exist, or people are having trouble getting connected to them. And that's where we need to do a better job of coordinating the system. So we're going to be rolling out, for instance, in the next couple of months, a digital resource hub that's going to have a resource connection finder on it. We're rolling out a mental health marketing campaign in May. It's the first mental health campaign I'm aware of that the city's ever done that's going to be addressing stigma and access to publicly funded services. So you've got to address access, but you also have to address connection. And, you know, I know you've spoken with Sheriff Dart this week. I was glad you spoke with him. We have a lot of opportunities to work better across all these different systems. You know, we have problems with people, um, the criminalization of mental illness, and that's a connection problem. That's a system coordination problem. So I think we're trying to address both uh, access and coordination, and I think those are some of the downstream impacts of, of prior decisions that have been made. Well, uh, Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart, as you mentioned, he was on Tuesday's Reset. He praised Mayor Lightfoot's efforts in dealing with mental health, but he did criticize former Mayor Emanuel uh, for his administration's lack of response and collaboration. Here's some of what Sheriff Dart said on Tuesday on, on Reset. Honestly, if you want to set up a thoughtless decision, that that really has to go right to the top because we kept struggling with the city because at the time we kept asking, I go, what are your metrics? What is it that's leading you to say this is a better route? And there, we, not, we got literally nothing back, nothing. I was like, okay, can you walk me through how this is going to be helpful, how this is going to be better, how it's going to be anything? And we got nothing. Matt, what's communication like today with various stakeholders and community groups? 
the sheriff, for instance, I mean, he has a great team, and we talk to that team regularly. Um, you know, we are funding work for returning citizens. The mayor actually has convened a task force that's working on developing a citywide strategy related to returning citizens. So I think, in general, one of the themes that I've observed is that we're just in very close um, contact with our colleagues at other levels of government, really making sure that we're all kind of rowing in the same direction, if you will. When it comes to community engagement, I mean, we, we have been really committed to that from the beginning. I, you know, I started a couple weeks after the mayor was inaugurated, and one of the first things I did uh, was I went out and met with folks all across our city and almost all of the different community areas, and I met with folks, frankly, that had been very critical of some of the decisions that had been made previously. And I think, you know, we've been very strongly of the view that you you show people respect by showing up mm-hmm. and by listening to them and really hearing hearing what their struggles are and hearing their ideas and letting those ideas change you. Um, and that's certainly something that we've done. So the mayor has a, a community mental health council but, uh, called the Chicago Council for Mental Health Equity, but we've met with lots of other stakeholder groups that I could name for you, uh, the Mental Health Board of Chicago, the McClifty Health Council, and, and, and on and on. Um, it's an ongoing part of our process. I think we, we see community engagement as something that does not having a, uh, have a beginning and an end. It's, it's a permanent part of our process. Matt, many experts and observers they fear that a mental health crisis could hit Chicago once COVID's over. Do you share those concerns? It's a great question. I think one of the things we know about public health emergencies or other crises um, is that there's often a tail in the wake of, of that crisis, and that tail exerts itself often in terms of trauma, stress, grief. Um, and we've been very focused on that from the beginning. You know, I was a part of the mayor's recovery task force. And one of the things that was really unique about our COVID recovery planning was that we were thinking about recovery, not just in terms of economic recovery, but emotional and mental health recovery, recognizing the very human impact that this crisis has had and has disproportionately had in particular communities. And so we've been planning for that from the beginning, and we've changed some of our strategies along the way to address things we thought we might see, like increased levels of depression and anxiety, increased levels of grief. We almost doubled the amount of money that we were putting into our trauma-informed centers of care plan. Uh, One of the things we heard in our recovery planning process from folks was that it's too hard in the city of Chicago to get connected to human services. And so the city's actually working right now with internal and external partners to develop a plan to implement a citywide 211 system. We're one of the only large cities that doesn't have that. So we've been, we've been doing a number of things in the midst of, of the pandemic, and we've been planning from the beginning that we were, we were going to need to do that. That's Matt Richards, Deputy Commissioner of Behavioral Health for the Chicago Department of Public Health. Matt, thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Sasha. Let's turn now to Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez of the 33rd Ward. She's been leading the push to reallocate city dollars away from police and into public mental health services. Alderman, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Sasha, for having me. You sponsored a plan last fall to shift emergency mental health calls away from police. And now the city's piloting two separate models, one that involves CPD and one that doesn't. What are your thoughts on that approach? So when we were negotiating the budget, I proposed this several times and the administration didn't move on it. I tried to convince them that we needed to make sure that we were using particularly 
uh, clinicians that were hired by the Department of Health and that we were using the mental health clinics, the public mental health clinics. The, the administration didn't move on it. They ended up passing the corresponder model and they wrote a line about uh, having also a non-law enforcement sort of model. Now they are going to pilot the non-law enforcement mental health uh, pilot alongside a corresponder model that will send CIT trained officers with clinicians. I welcome this development. I am really happy that we are having this conversation. I am really happy that my colleagues from the Progressive Caucus are supporting and are pushing so that we can move away from policing. But this has happened because there has been a grassroots push in order to make sure that we have non-law enforcement crisis response. And, and I'm really pleased about that. And I have been working with um, the Collaborative for Community Wellness on this. There's over 50 organizations that have been pushing, doing town halls, making sure that they are making noise about the need to shift from the use of police in the context of crisis, mental health crisis response in the city. You've actually said that you consider this an emergency to get police out of mental health response. Tell me more. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm going to put it in the context of COVID, for example, right? Um, I really like to make this connection because the only thing that we had ready to provide the city of Chicago in terms of service was police. The Department of Health has less than 500 employees ready to oversee the public health work in the city. We have over 13,000 police officers. So we had police officers doing wellness checks during COVID. We paid for that. Wow. <laughs> I think that that is unacceptable. And I think that we have seen how other cities have been shifting from using police to response to virtually everything to actually using the right tools, which is clinicians, EMTs, peer support workers. And I am really pleased that we are finally going into that direction, but I am also really worried that there has not been a commitment to actually shift funding from policing so that we can strengthen these programs more. Because right now we are getting um, money because of COVID. So there is rescue money that is coming, but it's also we need to ensure that this is going to be a sustainable kind of work. And we have been investing so much money in policing in our communities, but we have not done enough to fund um, departments like the Department of Public Health and initiatives like the ones that we're piloting, that we are about to pilot. So, Alderman Rodriguez-Sanchez, how would the non-police responder model work? So the Department of Health is currently working on the design, and we have tried to meet with them as much as possible to get updates. At the moment, they are planning to operate in several police districts. I believe that District uh, 8 would be the one that would have a clinician with an EMT. I believe 11th would have a peer support worker with an EMT. And they would be sending um, these staff members in mobile crisis units around the city. There are several programs that have been created around uh, the U.S. that have been very successful. We know about Cahoots. That is something that we have mentioned. We've been mentioning a lot. But there is in Denver, for example, the STAR program Mm -hmm. started operating only with a clinician and an EMT and only doing calls during the day. And they have not had to call the police in one single instance. They have been patrolling mostly the downtown area. 
of Denver, and they have had an incredible rate of success. So um, I think that we are ready to shift into that mode. I think that we have to use the right tools to solve the very complex problems that we have in the city. And mental health is definitely um, an emergency. So we will know more about, about this as it continues to unfold. I think that we still need a critical amount of community participation mm-hmm. in this. And I am still pushing to use the, the public mental health clinics for this model because I think it's very, very important that we invest in the public mental health clinics and we use them particularly for this kind of issue. We want to make those clinics available to the community. We want them to be able to be fully staffed and, and fully funded. And they can be an incredible resource. And one of the reasons why I believe that using the, the mental health clinics is so important is because if we use the mental health clinics, it would be a lot easier to track what is happening with mm-hmm. each of the people that we are serving in terms of data, right? And we, we can follow up. People won't fall through the cracks because they are in the CDPH system. Alderman, what, what else would you like to see from Mayor Lightfoot and her administration uh, on the issue of mental health? I think that we definitely need to make sure that we are making it accessible to communities. And we know that that has not been the case. I think youth particularly needs a lot more uh, attention. I think that the the Chicago public schools need to have a lot more clinicians. And that's something that CTU fought for. We still haven't seen um, the increase. And I know that that's that a, a little bit of a hard thing to to accomplish, but, but it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. We have young people um, who have been struggling, who were struggling before and now during this pandemic are in a really dire situation. Um, I think that it, it's going to be really, I, I would love to see a more robust um, sort of pilot for the city because Chicago is a really, really big city. And uh, I don't know if you remember uh, at the beginning of the year, there was this issue with this woman whose children were found in Humboldt Park in an apartment. It was seven children in an abandoned. uh, She she was arrested and she had to spend time in prison. There was no need to send police to a family that didn't have a roof. There was no need to do that. But that's what we have been doing consistently, right? Yeah, we'll, ha- we'll have to leave it there. There's there's so many uh, examples there. That's Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez of the 33rd Ward. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Finally, let's turn to Mark Ishog. He's CEO of Thresholds, one of the largest mental health providers in the Chicago area. They partner with the state to field calls from residents who are struggling to cope during the pandemic. He started things out by giving us a little background on the organization and its mission. So we were founded about 60 years ago uh, here in Chicago uh, to help people who were um, deinstitutionalized and really with no place to go. You know, our tagline is home, health, and hope. Uh, And that pretty much summarizes what we do, provide housing and health care and try to help our clients, we call them members, achieve hope uh, and be hopeful. We, we use what's called an unwavering uh, community engagement model, where we serve people beyond four walls. While we have lots of bricks and mortar, uh, we help those with serious and persistent mental illness and substance abuse challenges get the services they need and deserve, mostly outside of four walls by meeting people where they're at. We're, we're big. We have 1,200 yeah. plus employees uh, in five counties, and last year we served uh, over 8,000 people. So thinking of that mission, that home health hope, and all the folks that you're serving, 
how has the pandemic impacted thresholds and, and all these services that you're usually able to provide? Yeah, uh, what a year it has been, almost a year to the date uh, when we had to pivot. Uh, but I do want to say that we never closed down. We couldn't, and we wouldn't, and we won't. We had to, as I said, pivot and do things differently than we were doing pre-COVID. But our clients who live in the community and are very ill psychiatrically and physically need us. And so we were there in the best ways that we could be, and I'll explain some of the challenges that we had. But uh, we didn't close down. We have 52 congregate living sites, as small as eight-unit buildings to as big as 50 or 60 people living in um, studio apartments, I would call them, and a bunch of different sites. And so, of course, we had to make sure that all 52 of those sites were open and operating, some with 24-7 coverage. And then, of course, all of our outreach workers whose mission is to serve people in the community. That was the biggest and hardest change, truly, is that early in the pandemic uh, and many months throughout, we had to reduce our face-to-face visits and seeing people in person as we pivoted to telehealth, which is a whole nother story and a whole nother challenge. Part of our model was driving people in our staff cars uh, to their medical appointments, to their psychiatrist, to the grocery store, mm-hmm. to wherever they needed to be. And, of course, we couldn't do that and still are not able to do that right now. Yep. Face-to-face operations are, are critical a critical part of, of your approach. What are the outcomes that you're seeing then? I would say first six months of the pandemic, as we were really on much more of a, I want to want, again, I don't use the word shutdown or close down, but really reducing face-to-face visits. You know, we, we experienced higher levels of uh, morbidity and mortality, higher hospitalization rates, higher ER visits, and frankly, more suicide and overdose deaths than we certainly experienced in the six months prior and in the years before. So what it absolutely highlighted, what COVID certainly highlighted for us and everyone else is that for clients with high need and high touch, you know, telephonic health is part of the solution, but it's not the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, And as soon as we could in the summer, you know, early fall, stepping up face-to-face visits, and doing more uh, in-person visits as safely as possible, right? Because our our focus is how do we protect our staff and our our members from contracting COVID. But, you know, as we were able to up face-to-face visits more, you know, we saw reductions in hospitalization, ER, et cetera. So it just proves that our model works. Uh, We keep people healthy and safe, alive and vibrant and on the road to recovery when we can do what we do. And, you know, all I can say is uh, spring is coming and what a difference uh, it is going to make. More people are vaccinated. 700 plus of our staff are vaccinated. We're beginning client vaccinations. And, you know, as the data shows, as the more uh, people are vaccinated, as the uh, COVID case rates drop, hopefully we're going to be able to get out there and, um, do what we do so well. You say you're beginning client vaccinations. Are you administering vaccines there? We, we are doing some of it on site in some of our residential programs at our Southside uh, location uh, in Canaryville. We've been really lucky. We've partnered with the Chicago Department of Public Health and two of our integrated health partners, Howard Brown Health and Heartland Health Centers. And really between CDPH, Heartland and Howard Brown, uh, I just feel so blessed. Uh, They have made vaccinations available to our staff and and now soon to our our clients as well. 
Illinois created a free emotional support text line. It's called Call for Calm to help residents through the pandemic. What can you tell us about Threshold's role in that effort? Yeah, again, we were so fortunate and um, and so happy to be involved in it at the very, very beginning. Uh, and, of course, at the early days of COVID, uh, there were many more calls, which we responded to within 24 hours. Uh, so it's sort of like a warm line. It's not an immediate response. And really, we're there for, for many, many people and continue to be there today. Uh, I'm hoping that, that this is going to continue, and I think it's the state's intention that this continue. And, you know, I think as we move into the recovery phase, not post-COVID by any imagination, but into the next phase of recovery, call for calm and other kinds of warm and hotlines are going to just be as critical as ever. And, and we plan to be a, a huge supporter as, as long as they need us. Mark, we know that more Americans are reporting feeling anxious and depressed during the pandemic. Experts say that this could lead to a national mental health crisis. How's your organization thinking about the long-term impacts of COVID? Yeah, well, I mean, and I think we're experiencing that right now. I mean, we know from our own staff the mental health challenges that they are facing, all 1,200 of us, uh, with the challenges brought on by stay-at-home and homeschooling and and losing friends and family members. Uh, And we know that our our clients are hurting tremendously, uh, especially from social isolation, which, as we all know, um, lack of isolation, community engagement, being part of something outside of yourself is so critical to recovery, mental health and substance use recovery. So we're seeing this now, and we know that the challenges are are only going to grow. The opioid overdose rate in Cook County is higher than it's ever been. Suicide, especially among young people and people of color, Mm -hmm. is higher than it's ever been before. So we're just going to double down on all of our efforts to um, meet people where they're at and to be there for them and to know that this is this is long term. This is not any kind of short term fix. And uh, Threshold has always been in the business of caring for people uh, for the long haul. And um, that's what we continue to do. In a new citywide survey, the Collaborative for Community Wellness found that some of the biggest barriers to mental health care right here in Chicago are cost not knowing where to go, and uh, a lack of health insurance. What's your reaction to that? Are you seeing similar barriers? I think in some ways uh, community mental health has always been the the stepchild. I'm not even sure if that's the appropriate phrase. But there has not been heretofore the investment in community mental health uh, that we need in order to address these barriers. Uh, we're very fortunate that, the, that Mayor Lightfoot and the Pritzker administration do care and are investing deeply in places like thresholds and other community behavioral and substance abuse treatment programs. But we have a long way to go. Uh, we need much deeper investment. And it's not just about mental health, but it's about all the programs and services and interventions that connect to mental health, expanding housing and affordable housing, including housing vouchers enhancing our Medicaid rates here in Illinois for the services that we provide, better coordination at the, at the, at the governmental level between city and state and uh, emergency rooms and police and responders and primary care. It's about reform of the justice system and decriminalizing those that have mental illness and substance abuse problems. And it's clearly deeper, deeper investment in places like thresholds and many other organizations, but especially those operating 
on the south and the west sides of the city, investing in programs serving people of color and agencies run by people of color, this is going to make the difference. And we're going to keep pushing because we are advocates and we are fierce advocates and advocating in collaboration with all of our partners is is what's going to make the difference. Well, Thresholds is uh, one of four organizations that received funding from the city of Chicago last May to boost mental health services on the south and west sides of the city, where we know mental health services can be really difficult to access. What can you tell us about that? It's historical. The south and the west side have been healthcare and mental health and housing and food and other deserts for a long, long time. We were very, very fortunate to be one of the recipients of that expansion grant, which is going to allow us to expand what's called our assertive community treatment. That's a very high intense model of service for people with the most serious disabilities, like startup funding, because once we can get it going, then the Medicaid rates and the support from the state will allow us to keep it going. But yeah, it's really just about doubling down, and especially in these communities that historically have been underserved and undervalued and underinvested in. Uh, where health disparities are off the charts, where unemployment and underemployment are higher just based on the zip code in which people live. What, what are some of the policies that you can identify that you think are, are, are driving the disparities? Well, I mean, I think it's a combination of lack of public and private investment. Uh, I think it goes back 400 years, and it goes back 50, 60 years to housing segregation and redlining and contract buying. And it's just been reified by systemic and structural racism through unjust policing and unjust criminal justice systems, lack of investment in community organizations, uh, especially community organizations run by people of color. So, you know, all of this COVID challenge that we have faced this year also happened, of course, as you and everyone know, simultaneously with the racial necessary unrest and the racial reckoning. And COVID exposed uh, all the inequities uh, and the inequalities in a system and are forcing us, thankfully, to address them. And Building back better in Chicago and Illinois in this country means recognizing what we collectively have done wrong Mm -hmm. and what we have to collectively do to address these wrongs. I'm also hoping that the new stimulus uh, monies that are going to come to Chicago and Illinois are going to be targeted to the communities that need them the most. Well, on that same token, what do you think it's going to take for Thresholds to be able to expand its services and reach even more people? Well, it's a, it's a combination. We need deeper public investment. This is only a challenge that can be met when local, state, county, and the federal government say we are going to invest in services that save lives and, in fact, save money. What we do, if we can prevent homelessness, if we can prevent incarceration, if we can prevent unnecessary use of hospitals and emergency rooms and unnecessary nursing home long-term care, where so many people have been warehoused uh, in Illinois for decades. If we can prevent all of that, we can save precious resources to invest in places like thresholds. Mark, surely you aren't preaching the word of of mental health care and and not taking care of yourself. (laughs) Tell us what you're doing. I'm smiling. I'm so, um, I'm just so blessed. Uh, 
I have a great husband. I have two great dogs. I have family down the street, a mom and dad, 80 and 90, who are fully vaccinated. Uh, I, I have the best staff and the best board uh, that any uh, CEO could imagine. I get to go walk in the forest preserve, uh, the Cook County Forest Preserve, a gem of this greater metropolitan area. I listen to great music, and, um, and I read voraciously. So I'm, I'm actually doing all of those good things. You know, this might sound corny, but I'm, I'm just so filled with love. Love for my staff, love for my clients, uh, love for the community, including people I don't know, really. And that sort of love and hope that together we can change the way we do business, that we can change the narrative of how we treat each other and, and how we um, serve those who truly have the least. One last thing I want to say, I, yeah. and I know that you read it and probably everybody that's listening to this has read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, mm-hmm. but I'm 57. I, there's not a book that, like, woke me up more and I, 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 I sounds, yeah, I feel like it changed my life. Like, I, I don't know, like, how I didn't know all this stuff before. And then I read this book, and, you know, and one of her lines in this book is, like, the power of privilege and the recognition that those with privilege have to use that privilege to do the absolute best they can, to not close your eyes. She, hasn't, she talks about the, um, you know, if you have an old house and you know it's falling apart, you just can't look away because it is going to, something is going to happen. I actually think about this every single day and how I can use my talent and my love and my privilege to be a better partner and a better ally and just work my butt off to try to make this a better city for all of us. That's Threshold CEO Mark Ishag. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And that's today's Reset and the end of this edition of our Closing the Gap series. The disparities different communities face across Chicagoland doesn't just affect those people over there. They affect all of us. We hope you've learned a thing or two and enjoyed hearing from some of the people who are trying to close those gaps. If you missed any of the other entries in this series, you'll find them in your podcast feed. To hear other Closing the Gap series, go to wbez.org slash reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.